Welcome to the InVino Fab podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Patrice. Today on InVino Fab, we welcome Dr. Janet Salmons to the podcast. Dr. Salmons is a free range scholar, writer, coach, and artist through Vision to Lead. Areas of interest include emerging research methods and teaching collaborative learning in the digital age. She lives and works in Boulder, Colorado. Well, welcome to the podcast, Janet. We're so glad you're here. I'm happy to be here. I'm so excited. Janet's been one I've been following and reading her work for quite some time. So I'm thrilled that we get to chat with her and share a little bit about who she is, what she does, and her passion project. Now, Janet, you have a vast array of experiences and things you've done on your CV and what you're doing in your working life. But what's the through line for all of you that brings it all together? A passion for teaching and learning in all forms inside and outside of academia and a value for creativity and uh, various kind of modes of, of expression uh, are, you know, kind of the themes that, that tie all of those different kinds of experience together. It makes sense why you're very uh, focused on supporting those in interdisciplinary areas and wanting to bring people in that to learn about other people's work, whether it's a certain domain or a certain industry or a certain area that they're researching. You, you've done well to uh, kind of make those connections between each other. That's probably why I fancy some of your stuff and why I'm interested in reading the things that you share. Um, I know that you are, you've currently had a book out, so we can share with our readers that I was able to give a nice endorsement to a recent book around the topic of collaborating. And I don't know if you want to share a little bit about that, what that meant, because I think that started some of your early research, right? Well, the, the new book, Learning to Collaborate, Collaborating to Learn from Stylus, is a, a little bit different than some of my other books because, you know, while it certainly could be uh, used in as a text in an education uh, kind of context, higher ed, um, you know, program for uh, students who are preparing to be teachers or professors or whatever, um, but it's it's aimed really at people who are doing rather than say um, students, for the most part. Because it, the idea behind this is really that um, when we design educational learning activities, whether they're you know single activity in a in a one class or something that's going to go over a period of time, you know we can have multiple kinds of uh, objectives that, that we want to accomplish. So yes, we, we need to acquire the subject matter, but there are other skills that we want to teach. We want to teach critical thinking. We want to teach creative thinking. Well, I argue that we also want to teach the skills that people need to collaborate. That when you know we look at our lives in the world, in the work world, in our communities, we need to be able to work together with people. And sometimes they're face-to-face, -face, sometimes they're not. Um, they're probably different from us in many ways. You know, how do we organize things in such a way that, you know, it's fair, we have accountability, we all feel good about it, you know, we personally make sense out of the experience. So in this book, I lay out some recommendations for educators who, you know, at whatever discipline, at whatever level, are thinking about learning activities that, that, can, uh, that can do that. You know, it's interesting, there was an article, you know, yet another article um, yesterday in the press about 
um, the issues to do with cheating and the, the whole industry out there to, to write papers for students. Here's another place where collaborative learning is advantageous. You can't make this stuff up. You can't get somebody else to do it for you. You, you know, that synergy that comes from working together with other people, you know, is original. It's got to be original. That's just the nature of it. So I think that there, you know, in, in our world that it, at this point, you know, is very hyper competitive and very focused on individual performance, particularly when we're in school. I don't feel that serves our students, you know, when they get out into life. And so, you know, that's what this book uh, aims to assist with. I like that um, you are focusing towards the learner, but I also think this also focuses towards those instructors, those trainers, those teachers, um, those educators who want to actually think about uh, creatively sharing their subject matter, their domain and discipline in a more thoughtful way. You're right. We aren't preparing our learners to be uh, collective and collaborative if we have them competing for individual um, kind of grades or assessments or review me versus, well, what can we do together as a community? I think that's really right. smart. And that's, I enjoyed that book and reading that because I'm a fan of both the uh, community and bringing people together and figure out like, how can we work together on things? Um, and I do think you shared some really good insights. Where did this come from? Like, what was your driving force from th- this book? Because I think you've got this in your back burner for a long time. You've been working right. on this yeah, right. forever. Well, you know, it's interesting because the the taxonomy that is at the heart of this book, the taxonomy of collaboration that kind of lays out the different elements of the collaborative process and and the roles that that people need to play, mm-hmm. uh, came out of um, consulting work that I'd done. You know, I mentioned um, before about you know working in the nonprofit sector with uh, the AmeriCorps program. Uh, working in um, this sort of theater and education that is, you know, also a very in, an inherently collaborative discipline. And, you know, seeing the the challenges that, that people have. And then, you know, going into the education sphere and, you know, getting the message, oh, we, students don't like group projects. And I'm like, well, students like don't like group projects that are poorly organized, not given the adequate time and support, and are not assessed in a fair way. Right. Um, the models that I suggest in this book, basically, you know, you can't have a, a free rider, you know, which is a term that they use when, you know, the, the common complaint, I don't want to do a group project because... I'll end up doing all the work, but, you know, Bob and Sue are going to still get the same grade. Mm-mm. So as you know, you know, I have a whole section about assessment in this book. And, you know, part of that was also motivated by, by hearing from my um, adult working students when I was uh, teaching in leadership uh, types of courses where, you know, we'd be talking about teamwork and in, in the context of the workplace. And they would say to me, well, I'm being encouraged to work in a team. I'm being assigned to work on a team or a group. However, I'm being evaluated only on my individual performance. So there's no incentive for me to put my 
eggs into the basket of the teamwork because I'm not getting any recognition or, or any kind of, uh, you know, there's no reward for doing this. So the assessment system is out of sync with the work that was being assigned. And I think that, you know, these issues are the same, whether you're talking about people doing a team project in the workplace and where the rewards are, you know, either recognition or monetary, you know, salary increase and that sort of thing, or in the classroom where the reward is grades and being passed on to the next course or, or completing uh, the research project. So I think, you know, assessment, uh, you know, in, in, you know, all of those um, contexts is something that I try to, to lay out in this and to try to help people develop some system that will acknowledge both the individual work, you know, reflective journals and that sort of thing that they might assign as a kind of companion to the group project, as well as, you know, what the group uh, comes up with at the end. I think you're right. Like setting up the learning design from the beginning is really critical and, and the end outcomes and how it's measured. And if, whether you're looking at a, an assessment for a class or an evaluation for uh, a worker, um, performance has to look at both and it's not either or. I think we should think about how we scaffold what it would look like to look at a group moving forward and the process, not just the end outcome, like not, right. the, not the final thing we submit, but like what's evaluated along the way, how do they get over challenges, what does communication look like? I think all of that um, is really great and you've included it in our, the book. So we'll definitely put a link in our show notes for our listeners who are interested um, because I think that's an, an invaluable resource that you could have in K-12, higher ed, or just workplace learning. So I think you're right. Anyone can use it. And I like that you've incorporated both face-to-face and online because we have both these days. So that's really good. Um, one of your first books I read was around qualitative learning, a research online. So um, I was interested because that's where my world is and where I've previously, I've been working in online teaching and learning. Um, I was just curious a little bit more about what got you into that based on your consultant work. And before that, what was your favorite theater production? <laughs> well, the, the, the theater work that I did was around um, kind of creating a, a live, almost like a live case. Think mm-hmm. of a case study that encapsulates a problem situation that you can then say, okay, well, you know, what are we going to do about this problem? And, you know, how are we going to look at it from the different angles? So, you know, we would create things that would be a live representation of issues, everything from um, sexual assault and date rape to child abuse, uh, racism, issues in uh, education and in the workplace. And we would go, you know, all over the country doing these, you know, kind of uh, live sort of interactive training things, you know, using theater, the immediacy and the power of the theater to, to get those uh, messages across. And so, you know, it it was a, it was a very exciting kind of work. And, you know, even though I'm not doing that particular kind of work anymore, I think that that sense about, you know, trying to engage people in problem solving and at looking both, you know, critically and creatively, you know, at, you know, the situations, you know, whether it's a a social problem or a scholarly problem, you know, is something that that has 
uh, informed my work. We need more of that. So that's great to hear. Um, I think that's a powerful way to learn because you're actually applying it, uh, thinking about it, planning it, and then and, and, on feel, and feeling it because, yeah. you know, we, we focus, you know, I, I, you know, as anybody who's read my stuff knows that I use Bloom's taxonomy, you know, it's was something that really stuck with me from my, you know, undergraduate days sure. of like, you know, this thing really helps us to think through, uh, kind of ways of, of knowing and ways of thinking. But there is also a, a Bloom's taxonomy for the affective domain that people kind of ignore. And I really think that we need to look at the two of those uh, as complementary to each other, that, you know, the way that we um, perceive, the way it ties into, you know, our um, cultural norms, belief systems, values, um, is going to either you know, either, you know, we need to create a situation where people feel comfortable to re-examine things that maybe they've, they've um, held very um, strongly, but, you know, would, would be uh, productive to, to call into question as they move, you know, forward in their lives. So I, I think, you know, one of the, the strengths of the arts is the ability to bring in that affective side. And so, you know, again, I mean, I've now, you know, bringing that you know, into the scholarly and research domain, um, we uh, just uh, offered a webinar uh, in June that is available as a recording about uh, creative methods using everything um, from photographs, drawings, um, stories, comics um, in the research arena, both in terms of ways that we collect data from participants and also uh, ways that we disseminate research that allow, you know, people who are outside of academia to access and understand what we found. I think you're right. Expressing ourselves in different ways, whether it's visual, audio, sensory, is really important. And I believe that webinar was with um, Dr. Helen Carr as well, who was a previous guest on our podcast. So we'll right. link up to um, that webinar as well and, as and Melissa Nolas, who um, just subsequent to the webinar. Um, received a, a large grant to expand one of the projects that she talked about in uh, this uh, webinar about using photographs um, taken by children to understand their perceptions of the world and their environment. So, uh, you know, again, and I think that, that being able to, you know, look at ways to use those tools to, um, to help us answer difficult and sensitive questions is, um, you know, is valuable. I think that's great. Um, so let's back up to probably one of the first books I read of yours, which I think you're working on an update is the um, conducting qualitative online research. Right. <laughs> I'd been an early adopter with webinars. I mean, pretty much from the time that these platforms were invented. Sure. And so I'd been doing webinars. Um, and then when I, you know, went to um, think about the um, research for my dissertation about the collaborative process. And I knew that, you know, I wanted to look at um, the, the perspectives of cutting edge educators who are doing really interesting things with the collaborative experience with their students. You know, I want to hear from them. And I knew that I couldn't just be limited to talking with people 
who I'd had the ability to meet with face to face, I wanted to um, study internationally, you know, partly because, you know, I was, I was also sort of a subtext of my own curiosity with about whether this sort of competitive uh, individual performance streak that um, we talked about before um, was also a factor that other cultures were contending with. But of course, I had you know no money. I could not be like flying around the world talking to people. I mean, that would have been fun. But I went like, aha! Why can't I use the same technology I'm using for webinars to do one-on-one interviews? I mean, right. why not? You know, right. we can log in. Um, and so then I, I ended up using what I've later come to know as uh, graphic elicitation and also uh, graphic. Uh, collaboration generation because uh, we use the shared whiteboard uh, to, you know, kind of uh, invite the participants to illustrate their experiences using the elements of this taxonomy and uh, kind of show, you know, how would they map out? What are the sequence of activities uh, that they put together? Um, so, you know, after I completed the research and, uh, you so know, can I, I just that, ask a question. About yes. That? Um, so it looks like, it sounds like you would share like a screen and use an online whiteboard and images that they would like kind right. of draw or something. Is that what they would do? Well, with, um, with some of the webinar platforms, you have the ability to have a shared whiteboard. Right. So, um, I used a combination of like, say I put my, my interview questions that were fairly, you know, kind of big picture questions, sure. not like a, a lot of minute questions, but the, the same core of, so it's semi-structured interview. So the same core of questions I was asking to everyone. So I put those on PowerPoint slides just to help kind of structure the interview. So, you know, as you would in, in a webinar where you see people present slides. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'd have the questions and, you know, in this, um, type of interview. This is not the type of interview where you want to like surprise someone like, aha, you know, like, what do you think about this? Mm -hmm. This is something where, you know, I wanted the participants to think about this stuff ahead of time. So they already had the materials about the collaborative taxonomy and what the elements were. And uh, my request for them to come to this interview with a learning activity or project or some assignment they had used with their students in mind that we could use to really dig in deeply. So it's not like they came in just, you know, off the street. Sure. And so then, you know, once you're logged in, the, you know, I, so, you know, as you know, from reading the book and, you know, for people who, who, uh, you know, look at the, uh, the book, particularly on the Stylus website, under the resources area, you, there's a link to the taxonomy, and, and we'll include that in the show Absolutely. notes so that people yeah. see what we're talking about. So, you know, I would put those, you know, I, I went through and explained what each of those kind of pieces of the collaborative process represented, and they each have kind of an icon that, that would uh, symbolize that piece of the collaborative process. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, we could use this, the blank shared whiteboard to put those up and say, well, okay, what sequence did your project take? You know, did you first have a, a meeting and decide what you're going to do? Or did you 
first, you know, divide the project up and, and give pieces to some, you know, how did these stages fit together? So we could use that whiteboard to, you know, draw and manipulate these uh, icons and kind of create these visual maps that represented each of the participants, um, you know, projects that they wanted to discuss. So, you know, I think that that kind of shared whiteboard is just a, a fabulous tool. And, you know, we, you know, I try to not, you know, advertise any particular platform. I just suggest if people are interested right. in doing that kind of research, you know, you look for the, the tools that, that include um, that feature. But, you know, it's, it's really exciting. And so then you have... Well, especially because now you have new platforms since your research was, right? That are just right. nuanced and new, uh, new options to do. And so, yeah, you decide what that's going to look like. Right. Well, and, and I mean, interestingly, some of the new platforms have fewer features. So, you, <laughs> know, it's, it's, you know, you just have to, you know, really do some uh, uh, search research to see, you know, what, what will fit depending on the type of interaction you want to have with someone. Right. And, and certainly... Um, so, you know, so that's kind of where I started, you know, and I saw the richness of that where we had visual data, oral data from the mm -hmm. verbal responses and comments that people made. And then there's also a text chat area. So if there's something that they wanted to write, you could have that. So you have all these kinds of data you've collected within one uh, synchronous interaction. So I thought this was like the coolest thing you could possibly do. Absolutely. Um, but then, you know, I expanded, you know, as I've as I've gone to also write about, you know, other kinds of asynchronous uh, interactions, as well as um, the use of extant or, you know, existing data. So um, in my earlier books about um, qualitative online interviews, then the, the next, the, the most recent book is doing qualitative research online. And I'm just uh, getting ready to start a new edition of that, which will be um, expanded. That's great. Well, I looked to that because um, for those reasons, you had multiple modes and what I was looking at is online communities. So I was like, oh, this is perfect because I will interview, but I will also interact with them in these spaces and have conversations and have them show me things. So I really thought that was rich, uh, both the interview and the, the doing qualitative research online books. I'll put links to both um, for folks to take a look at. Um, from that, though, you've been doing this for many years. Has, some, has anything changed in how you're thinking about it? Now that you're, you're going to do an update, are there some things you know you want to add into that that haven't been talked about maybe in the past? Um, ones that I think about like right away for me because I look at um, online open spaces is the ethics and the practice and some right. of that. Yeah. Right. Yes. I, I, I mean, in the doing qualitative research online, the first edition that, that's out now, there are two chapters about ethics. I mean, I, I want people to really uh, think through uh, the ethical choices that they make and, you know, respect for privacy. And I think, you know, today that also ties in with, you know, building your credibility as a researcher uh, with participants because, you know, thanks to um, bad actors, shall we say, um, people don't trust you know, say, you know, responding to people online. I mean, in some ways, I think it's it is better for a qualitative researcher because we're trying to develop a relationship with somebody as a participant or in that type of qualitative research because certainly there are qualitative researchers who work with uh, large data sets and things like that. And I will be uh, including some of that in 
in my next edition of the book. But for researchers who are trying to go with those more in-depth stories, like what I've just described, what Melissa Nolas was describing in, in the webinar about, you know, working with children and sensitive uh, vulnerable populations. And, you know, this is not a one shot, come in, take my poll, my survey and, and then goodbye, you know? So, I mean, in some ways I think, you know, we have the ability to develop a trusting relationship, but that's something that I think we need to pay uh, close attention to, you know, in the research design. You know, in terms of the things of, you know, how, how I am thinking about things differently, I think, you know, I have to acknowledge that, you know, those, you know, I had this very, very idealistic view of the power of the internet, you know, to create access to higher education for people who otherwise couldn't go to graduate school. Those are the people who were my students when I taught, you know, for the power of, you know, exchange and sharing and all of these things. And now, you know, there are very negative forces out there that we can't ignore. So, you know, how, how do we um, do the good work that we want to do both in terms of education and teaching and learning and sharing and, and research um, and, you know, in some ways, you know, reclaim or, or claim, you know, our uh, kind of place within this online world so that, um, that we can do those things and, and um, be seen, you know, as, you know, valuable contributors. Um, yeah, the other day someone asked the question of do people – um, so an example of a space, because Jen and I know each other on Twitter, um, I'll put her link to e-interview on there uh, as well. But someone asked, do people in Twitter education use the platform differently now? How do they come and go? Has it changed? And I, I think you're right. Like, it depends on how they typically use it. Is there a distrust of certain spaces online? And this comes into our classrooms. Well, it's a learning management system, whether it's a social media platform or another site, people are wondering, like, where are people taking my information? How is it being used? Right. How will I be interpreted on it? Um, so I think there's so many complexities because online is not thought as the other anymore. People realize online life is real life. And what does that mean to put some digital trace of yourself somewhere? Right. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm right. looking forward to your update. Well, I, I guess, you know, another thing that I, you know, would like to say just, you know, kind of more generally since I've talked mm-hmm. about my broad career. Yeah. Is at this point in life, I feel like you know I've spent a lot of time, you know, trying to study and learn and experience, you know, from from different angles the whole you know kind of universe of teaching and learning and that sort of thing. And I think that there's uh, an importance to think about how we give back. Mm-hmm. And there, I, I think the sense of say generosity of spirit has you know it's I wouldn't say lost but like in jeopardy from the 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 sense of competition and like I'd better hold on to my me mine you know or I'm not gonna survive Mm. uh, has you know it's a a chilling effect um you know the 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 idea of of mentoring you know in, informally or or formally of creating opportunities to showcase good work that other people are doing innovative things that people are doing that are you know kind of the unsung um, 
forward thinkers and uh, people who are, you know, trying out things. I, you know, I, you know, I'm looking for opportunities to try to help, you know, shine a light on some of the interesting things that are that are going on. And to me, you know, that's one of the contributions that I can make at this point. So, you know, as you know, you know, one of the things I'm working on right now is uh, Sage Method Space, which is uh, an online community. And we look at, you know, all things to do with not only conducting research, emerging methods, things that are interesting, uh, developments, you know, about theory and, and methodology and all of that kind of stuff, as well as um, teaching methods, mentoring, supervising researchers, or about writing and publishing uh, your work. So I, I feel that, you know, by working through that methodspace.com, you know, that is a place where hopefully um, people who are early career novice student or even researchers who maybe think, well, I want to try a different approach than I've used before, you know, could find resources that would be helpful to them uh, and that it's also a place where we can showcase some, you know, interesting work that's, that is being done. So I'm kind of always out there scouting, you know, who's doing something cool that might be valuable to others perhaps outside their own disciplines. Yes, they present at the conferences of their own uh, associations and and write in the journals that people in their fields read. But, you know, what if you aren't in sociology? Well, you still might, you know, you're in business or uh, humanities or education or some other field, you know, the approach that they've used might be useful to you also. You know, maybe that would spur some new thinking for you about how you might approach things. So, um, you know, I see that work, you know, kind of in line with this sense of um, trying to be generous and uh, applaud, you know, others' work and and trying to, you know, help break down some of the uh, boundaries between um, not only different disciplines, but people who are at different stages of their careers as well as people who are, you know, working in the kinds of things we're talking about, but are outside of academia altogether. People who are social researchers working for agencies or people in research institutes or even uh, companies, other government agencies that, um, you know, are doing research, but, you know, they, they can't maybe find their niche within the other kinds of uh, materials that are, are typically written about in terms of uh, the research context. I love it. So I, that's why I do follow methodspace.com because I think you're right. You're kind of putting that in between space. So whether it's like the conference hallway conversations to the water cooler chats to things you just wouldn't hear about because you don't go to this meeting or you're not part right. of X community, you are kind of weaving in between. I think those in between spaces that yourself and there's a number of people that are being more public scholars and sharing, um, the cross connections are doing is opening up what other people are doing and allowing others to think about their own work differently and maybe how they might take a method or an idea. So you have things from research to presentations to uh, ethics to how do you supervise other researchers on there. And I think there's a wealth of it that people could go, oh, I would apply this to my own work or I could learn a bit more. So I'm a big fan of free 
uh, professional development and learning. So I'm grateful for that space that you've shared um, and, and inv- invitation to join in that space because I think right. you've done doing the work that we should be thinking more of um, in general as scholars is informing the right yes. information out there. And, and I, I welcome anyone who is listening to this podcast and thinks, well, hey, you know, I'm doing some cool things that, <laughs> you know, I'd like other people, I think other people could, uh, you know, learn from. Well, you know, contact me, you know, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, you know, those are my two main uh, social media outlets. And, you know, we'll put the show notes and, you know, tell me about it. You also are connected to other communities for resources and support. So you also um, are involved in this other community, the Textbook and Academic Authors Association, because I see you tweeting every now and then with their ACRI chats. Right. In terms of professional associations, the Textbook and Academic Authors Association is a small uh, association, um, very reasonable membership um, fee, if uh, that's a constraint for some people. But here, you know, the common thread is that, you know, everyone is writing something or other uh, in the academic world. So there's some people who are more on the scholarly side in terms of academic journals and other people who write books, textbooks, professional and trade books. Uh, when I went to the conference, I thought, you know, it was amazing seeing the, like they had kind of a display of the winning textbooks and like, you know, here's one about concrete, you know, and here's one about books, you know, and here's one about music and here's one about social work because what we're talking about is about writing and about the, you know, I, I mean, writing is... I love writing, but I mean, writing is hard. I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's really challenging. The, the blank page, you know, stands before you like, ah, what am I going to do? Um, so, you know, this is a community that, you know, is designed around, you know, creating uh, opportunities for exchange of ideas, learning really practical skills about, you know, software tools and this and that. Um, but also, just, you know, sharing what we can learn from each other and, you know, commiserating about the, you know, the challenges that go along with writing. And, and I think, you know, today, when we say writing, quote, unquote, it may also be, you know, other kinds of uh, communication that's more visual or media. um, And and I'm sure that will be a direction that will go. So um, I do, I write a monthly post for um, the TAA blog, which is called Abstract, and that is open access uh, to anyone. And I give um, usually at least two webinars every year, and those are limited to TAA members. So uh, I think you know one of the benefits of joining TAA is that uh, you have access to these very you know more intimate um, kinds of you know, more intentional kinds of webinars that, you know, have, uh, you know, opportunity for interaction with other members, and then those are recorded. So if you're thinking, I know they, I know I've seen something about, you know, creating a, a media trailer on your book, like, where is it? Well, it's in there. And also incredible amount of resources about contracts and royalties and just, you know, the nuts and bolts of of being a writer so that it applies across disciplines. And I've kind of just, you know, at this point have found that as my kind of uh, association home uh, because I, I enjoy, you know, kind of uh, 
you know, seeing what other people are, are doing and, and, uh, you know, trying to learn from them. I love it. This writing um, support group, self-help group, I might need to join this. Um, So this looks amazing. So um, I think it's a valuable resource. And I love talking with folks to share about their kind of communities and people that associations are part of because I may not know about them and neither will our listeners. So we'll definitely put a link to this group because it sounds like they do some amazing things. They, They post a lot on Twitter and they share um, is it the Acri chats that they work yes. on? There's a, you know, they run a chat on Twitter and those are not just a, just, you know, who wants to chit chat, but the uh, facilitator for that, you know, really provides a lot of resources. So, you know, if you, you know, we'll, we'll include the hashtag for it. So you can go back and look at the, the past ones. Now coming up in um, November, is Academic Writing Month. And so um, TAA and Method Space have been teaming up the last few years around Academic Writing Month so that we are you know, sharing our resources so Method Space readers can see uh, the uh, content that is being posted on TAA and vice versa. Um, so you know, we'll be doing that again this year uh, in in uh, 2019, so this year the the method space focus for Academic Writing Month will be around publishing books, and so we will go f- uh, through everything from concept through the production process, and we will have a webinar with uh, Sage editors and uh, staff who can you know speak to that side of it that you know we might not you know especially if a new author might not have had the experience with and then on with the TAA you know they're looking at some uh, themes around integrity of academic writing and uh, quality issues so you know we'll be working again with that and and I think we'll have a very rich uh, set of offerings that's amazing. So Mo, uh, the hashtag, yes. uh, we'll put that in our, cause that's a popular one for many writers. So there's some non-academic writers that use that month as well for writing. There's a right. Digrymo as well. So I'm glad we were talking to you before so we can give folks a heads up of what to expect. I think that's great. I know I'll be tuning in to learn more about the webinar and book publishing series. So thank you for sharing that. I've made a note of that for myself and I'll put it in the show notes um, because I think that's a, a good inspiration for us to get writing. The hashtag um, chat is the monthly hashtag and we'll put a link to that and if there's any archives, um, we'll include those as well. So thanks, Janet. Um, so while you're not writing, because you're writing all the time, it sounds like, when are you not writing? I, I do. I do have some time that I'm not writing. Okay. I think that for one thing, you've you got to think about what it is you're going to write. So yeah. No, I think that's good. Something else. So when you're not writing, um, and maybe you're reading, uh, what might be some stories or things you read or watched or heard lately that kind of uh, something you like to share? It could be a book, an article, or whatever you've read lately for our listeners to go check out. Well, one of the books that I'm discovered and I'm just uh, reading right now is called The Art of Knowing. And <clears throat> I will, um, I'll send you the uh, the title and author you can put in the, the show notes. But, uh, you know, what fascinated me about this book is, you know, kind of looking at 
knowledge and and learning and and you know expanding our ability to know as well as what it is we do know um you know it's kind of a an interesting take but the other thing that that I've been doing a lot more when I'm not doing my uh blogging and book writing um is uh art journaling and painting so i've been uh, really trying to you know walk the talk and take some time for my own creative side and i do live in colorado so i've got a lot of inspiration for that and that that's been really enjoyable i'm i'm offering some workshops about uh journaling and art journaling and some of those kinds of things which at this point i've been offering workshops in my local uh community and kind of more of an in an art uh arts arts oriented setting but the more that i do this the more valuable i see it also for researchers because i think that you know there is a a personal experience you know dimension to doing research that um you know is you know kind of one piece of why i think this kind of journaling would be valuable um but i also think that doing you know this kind of visual art really you know helps you to become a a more precise observer and that is also you know an important research skill so i'm i'm hoping to you know do some more work in that uh, area that's great a recent book that i read that i think you might appreciate is um i don't know if you know jenny odell she's a instructor of a faculty member out of berkeley in art and she wrote this book on how to do nothing uh, resistance uh, etch an economy. That. Yeah. So that book, um, she talks a bit about um, doing nothing, but doing something. So like you are doing in your community, uh, but just taking time to notice. So she calls her bird watching bird noticing. And you do have a beautiful backdrop of mountains and Colorado, I'm very jealous of you, my flat Texas land. Um, so um, I think the, the idea of getting out into any sort of wilderness or wild um, and just taking in what's around, whether it's plants, whether it's the landscape, whether it's just noticing things and people and people watching. Um, so she talked a bit about that. That's kind of got me reflecting on what I'm doing and what are you painting these days? I'm just curious. Yeah. I, I do... Um a lot of kind of landscapes and just you know trying to not not in a completely realistic mode but in a more yeah. interpretive mode to um you know capture something about uh, the place around me that i'm noticing or something that that you know captures my imagination so um i'll send you a link i just made a little media piece Great. So I'll send you a link. You can you can include that if people are interested. Well, that'd be excellent. I I think it's a neat way to uh, process and kind of take a step back from the things you're seeing and doing or or deeply engrossed in. A couple of years ago, I wrote a post on Method Space about um, listening to your muse, and I said, well, you know, academic <laughs> writer types don't think about you know they think the muse would be like for poetry or something like that, right. but. You know, I think that that the stepping back and doing something creative not only does it help you to become a better observer, it also you know allows you to kind of you know open up to, you know, sometimes like you know see the connections between like oh wait a minute like this works with this, or you know here's how I can explain this 
complex, uh, abstract topic in a way that people will understand. So, you know, I just, uh, you know, encourage people like step away from the computer, just like, <laughs> step away, go do something else, you know, take a walk, do something creative. And, you know, that will, you know, help you, especially for people who get very uh, stressed out about, you know, dissertation or thesis or, you know, something that's under deadline and you're like the more you the more the pressure mounts the worse it gets in terms of trying to create something that you know to meet that deadline so I I think some of these other kinds of things can be you know you're thinking like I don't have time for that well actually I think you know in the long run it's actually more efficient in terms of time because you you know are able to bring something more to it. Yeah, like like a good mulled wine. You let things marinate in your head. Um, I think it lets exactly. you kind of make connections to nodes and things you won't wouldn't if you're like fully engrossed and immersed. So take a break and just go sit. Have a little bit. Think about it. It's just kind of like you know breaking the you know the pattern and then that you know of of what your usual process is and. Uh, it, you know, for me, you know, it's it's really been a rewarding to uh, to be able to do that. And so, over the last year or so, it's something that's you know really become uh, you know more important to me, I think, and it's enjoyable too. So that's always fun. Uh, well, Dr. Salmons, I think we've given a good prescription for the folks out there. So let's talk about before we wrap up. Is there um, anything these days that are it's just bringing you joy to your life. So making you smile or uh, lifting your spirits. The opportunity to take some time to be outdoors and combine that with uh, art making has been, you know, the really exciting kind of new direction. I I think I, I've made more of a commitment to it. So to, to do that on a regular basis, and that's been really uh, fun and exciting. I love that you've put that into your practice. Thank you. Speaking of joy, um, this podcast brings me joy. And when often, when great guests like you come on and share all that you are passionate about, uh, it makes me smile. So thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to chat with us for the Invino Fab podcast. We appreciate it. All righty. To catch the next episode, be sure to subscribe to Invino Fab wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Invino Fab, and we'll always welcome comments and messages sent by tweet private message or email at invinofabulum at gmail.com. Cheers. Cheers.